Bible app, whatever you use to read the scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I don't coordinate with the Advent speakers. And I try not to preach necessarily, I mean, I guess it depends on the year, but try not to preach specific Christmas messages, maybe until we get closer to Christmas. But man, Ed and Kelly took my sermon this morning. I thought I was in the clear. Luke chapter 12, we'll get to the passage in just a moment, but let's just remind ourselves of some things and just to piggyback on what Ed and Kelly were sharing Remember that when Jesus opened his ministry, when it says Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, this kind of summarized the general message of all of his messages. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The central message that Jesus proclaimed was that the kingdom of God had arrived. That was the good news, right? Because remember, if we go back to the Old Testament, God had promised his people that he would send them a king. We use the word Messiah, right? The anointed one. God would send them a king who would establish his kingdom. They would be, he would be a faithful king and establish a faithful kingdom. And of course, these prophecies came in the context of generations of faithless and wicked kings. You look and read the book of Kings, right? See the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, mostly. There's a few that stand out as Righteous that are commended as being righteous and faithful. But by and large, generations of faithless and wicked kings who ruled over his people. And then, after God brought destruction, his judgment upon them, they were ruled by foreign overlords. And in a cascade, whether it be the the wicked kings of Israel and Judah, or whether it be these foreign overlords, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, or so forth, there was just generation after generation of death, destruction, destitution, despair. It was just, the Old Testament history is a sad history. A history of disappointment, a history of of despair. And yet those promises shine out, they shine through, they echo loudly. And so by the dawn of the first century, there was this sense among God's people that, that this hope, this expectation that God would finally send his Messiah, that Messiah would come and would finally establish God's kingdom, and that kingdom would be characterized by, by peace and justice and blessing. Just some of the passages that we think about, we associate with the Christmas season, promise this. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And that he shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
and he shall be their peace. So when Jesus came and announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, there was this expectation that all of those promises now were going to be coming to fulfillment. They would be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus certainly would, would conquer the Roman overlords. He would drive them out of Israel's ancestral territory and he would reestablish David's throne and rule over God's people and ushering in this era of peace and prosperity and blessing. And yet that's not what happened, right? It's true Jesus was establishing the kingdom of God. He had come to redeem his people in accordance with Old Testament promises. But he did so in his first advent not by power or might, but by humility and death. The victorious Messiah in his first coming was also the suffering servant. He was the Passover lamb. He had come to lay down his life in death to save his people from their sins. He would shed his blood to cleanse them of their unrighteousness. And so... Just before the ascension, Jesus dies. He's raised again from the dead, 40 days with the disciples. He's now about ready to ascend into heaven. The disciples recognize that though Jesus had made the sacrifice to redeem his people, the kingdom that they had expected had not yet been realized, right? The opening, uh, opening chapter of Acts, Acts 1-6. So when they had come together, they asked him, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, Jesus had done everything kind of moving in this direction. He made these promises so the kingdom of God was here. He had died. They understood that, 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 that the death and the resurrection were to redeem, to cleanse, to spiritually make them right before God. But there's still this element that there's no palace, there's no throne, there's no regal robes, there is no conquest of, of enemies. That part, they recognize, has not yet been fulfilled. There was still something was not right, and so they asked Jesus that question. Well, during his earthly ministry, Jesus indicated that his mission would consist of two parts. The first part, which would be initiated by the first advent, saw the Son of God enter this world as a human being, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He would live a sinless life. He would obey the Father, perfectly do the Father's will in all that he said and all that he did. He would lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross and then be raised again from the dead. That's the first part. The second part would occur at the second advent, where Jesus would return to the world in glory and power, and he would bring to reality all that was promised, all that was guaranteed in his first coming. So all the things he was working towards, all the things he was setting into place, he would come back and he would bring to its fullest reality. He would make it, clear in every way at his second coming. But in between those two times, there is not an intermission, but an intervening period, so to speak, where Jesus is still continuing to fulfill, fulfill his mission. He is continuing to fulfill it from afar, right? The book of Acts is not the, an account of the ministry of the disciples, but it's the account of the ministry of Jesus through his disciples, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is continuing to work from afar. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's working through his disciples. And those disciples then are to continue that work until Jesus comes. So every generation of disciples from the ascension to the second advent should be faithfully engaging, faithfully devoting themselves to fulfilling the mission that Jesus had given to them. 
Our passage today reflects how they are to go about fulfilling their mission in this intervening time. Jesus is pointing to his second coming. He is teaching them that he will come again. But how are they to work? How are they to live? How are they to exercise their discipleship? How are they to, to represent him as they wait for him to return? He's going to go away. He's going to be absent. And in his absence, they are to watch for his return and work faithfully to do his will until he comes again. So look at our passage, Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 35, and we're going to read to verse 48. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not deserve a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more." We see in this passage that Jesus gives three, uh, Peter uses the word parables, three parables, they're not long, lengthy parables that we're expecting, but illustrations, metaphors, to teach about his return at the second coming. He is teaching them through these parables about the work that they are to do in this intervening period between his ascension and his second coming. And he is teaching them through these illustrations, through these parables, about their level of preparedness for his return. So we can break the passage really into sort of two parts, verses 35 to 40 and verses 41 to 48. And the first two of these illustrations, these two parables come in that first section where Jesus is calling his disciples to readiness. There's a call to readiness. Jesus is calling his disciples to readiness for his return. In that first illustration, verses 36 to 38, we see a a master who has gone out to a wedding feast and a wedding feast of course, at that time was the celebration. It uh, could be a few days, oftentimes lasted a week, where a husband and wife were formerly, uh, they were, they sort of, the marriage part was two parts. There was a betrothal period where there was the official marriage, but the marriage was not consummated until later. And, and it's that part of the marriage process that is being celebrated in a, in a wedding feast. Like I said, these feasts could take place over the course of several days, perhaps usually uh, as long as a week. In this situation, Jesus doesn't reveal to us how long the master is away, 
but he is home, he's absent, uh, he's, he's left home, he's absent to attend this feast. And his, uh, as he leaves, he leaves behind his servants to continue to do their work in his absence. Even though the master is gone and the time of his return is unknown, the servants you see in that passage are ready for their master to arrive at any moment. When he returns, they want to be able to open the door and let him in. When he knocks on that door, they want to be there to open the door and let him in. They don't want to be any, just, they don't want there to be any kind of delay. And so they remain available. They remain alert. They remain watchful. Even into the night, Jesus says, even into the second and third hours, uh, third watches of the night, they are waiting. They are, they're at the door. They are at the ready in case their master returns. Now, the night watches were a convenient way of, of kind of uh, regulating the overnight hours, dividing up the nighttime into manageable units, usually for soldiers to guard, right? The, the nighttime is a time where, where thieves work, where there's a, people can do nefarious things under the cover of darkness. And so the soldiers would break up the night into, into several units to stand guard during those, 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 that, that time to just be alert, to be ready in case some problem arises. The Jews divided up the night watches into three units of four hours each. So the second watch would start around 10 p.m. and go to 2 a.m., and the third watch would cover uh, 2 to 6 a.m. The Romans divided the watches into four units of three hours each so that the second watch of the night would start about 9, a, uh, 9 p.m. and go to about midnight, and the third watch would start about midnight and cover till about 3 a.m. Regardless of which one is being used here, Jesus is clearly referring to the deepest hours of the night when most people are normally asleep. But even in this time, when most people are asleep, when most servants would be asleep, these servants, the the servants of this master, are alert and they are ready and they are expectant for their master to arrive at any moment and let him into the house. And Jesus says these alert and ready servants are blessed. You notice in verse, uh, verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. The word blessed there is the same word that is used by Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. Blessed are, blessed is, right? That word speaks of divine blessing. This is the favor of God given graciously to his people in times of need or in certain, under certain conditions. These servants are Divinely blessed, if, they, if you consider that this way. The master thinks of them as being divinely blessed, that he would pour out the fullness of his blessing upon them because they were faithful servants. They remained alert. They prepared themselves for the master's return. They stood at the ready. They anticipated his arrival at any moment, even though they had no indication. There was no telegram. There was no advanced messenger. There wasn't a prearranged time. They were ready. They were alert at every moment for his arrival. And their blessing comes in the form of a banquet that the master will hold in their honor. Now, this is, again, a, a very blessed thing, a very gracious thing. Servants did not typically dine with their master. They certainly would not have been invited as special guests at a banquet. But the master here takes the opportunity to reward his servants for their alertness, for their readiness, for their faithfulness. They've been good servants. They've shown by their actions a heartfelt and honest devotion to their master. And so the master invites them to come to this banquet. He makes them to recline, which was the custom at a, at a special meal, at a special banquet. Shows a, a sense of importance, a sense of significance about the meal. He serves them as honored guests. What an unexpected reward 
What a demonstration of, of his favor and blessing to them. The second illustration comes in verse 39. It's a little bit different, but it makes the same point. It really reinforces the point of the first parable. And in this illustration in verse 39, we have, again, a master who leaves his home for an undetermined amount of time. But during his absence, a thief breaks into the home and steals his possessions. And Jesus says that if the master had known that his home would be burglarized in the first place, he never would have left home. He never would have left his house. He would have remained on guard. He would have remained at the ready for that thief to come. But his absence made the home vulnerable to robbery. By staying home, he could have warded off the thief and protected his house and his possessions. Now, the point here, like in the first parable, is a call to alertness. The master of the house was not prepared for a thief to break into his home because he didn't expect the thief to come in the first place. If he had known about the thief's intent to come and burglarize his home, he would have altered his plans and his preparation. And yet, despite his anticipation of a robbery, the master should still have remained alert. Now, both of these illustrations are parabolic. They are illustrations. They are ways of communicating real-life situations. We can imagine these kinds of situations. They're real-life situations that speak to or point to spiritual truth. They convey spiritual truth. And both of these parables teach important truths about Christ's second coming, as well as the disposition and the work of his disciples in the time between the ascension and the second coming. So what do these parables teach us? I think they teach, three, teach us three things. First, they teach us that Jesus Christ will return to this world to finish what he started in his first coming. In other words, there are things that are still yet undone, things that are still not yet realized. And so in his second coming, Jesus will bring to full reality the redemption of his people. He will destroy all opposition that is still aligned to him. And he will bring to full reality the kingdom that he established in his first coming. And Jesus clearly states this in verse 40, that he is coming again to, do, to finish the job, so to speak. In verse 40, he says, You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And notice that Jesus refers to himself in this verse as the Son of Man, as he often does throughout the Gospels. And the phrase Son of Man, just if we were to make it, I think it's, in, it's capitalized in verse 40, Son and Man. If you were to use lowercase letters, the, word, the phrase Son of Man is a Hebrew expression just meaning a human being, right? Ezekiel refers to himself this way in the book of Ezekiel. For example, Ezekiel 2.1, Yahweh said to me, Son of man, human being, earthling, earthly person, person of dust, right? Stand on your feet and I will speak to you. So in one sense, when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he is referring to his full humanity. But he is a human being just like us, just not tainted by sin as we are. But son of man, capital S, capital M, is a more technical reference to the Messiah, and for this we go back to the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel reports the vision that he sees as the angel gives him a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this figure, this Son of Man, capital S, capital M, is, is a human being. It's a, like a human being, he says. That's the reason why he gets this name. He's one who looks like a human being. One who is in full humanity, and yet he receives a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. That's a, a reference to Yahweh, emphasizing his eternality. One who is from of old and will continue into eternity. The Son of Man redeems people, it says here, from every nation, tribe, and language and brings them into His everlasting kingdom where they will live in the glory of His reign. If we consider the context of these verses within the broader chapter of Daniel 7, it underscores that this Son of Man will destroy all rival kingdoms. Everyone that opposes God, everyone that opposes God's people, the Son of Man will vanquish. He will destroy And so in Daniel chapter 7, this Son of Man figure is carrying out a messianic ministry. He is doing the job of the Messiah. So when Jesus says that the Son of Man is coming, he is pointing to his future return. That he will come back to this present evil age. He will bring it to an end. He will gather all of God's people to himself. And he will bring to full reality the dominion of God's kingdom under his rule as it was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. So the first advent, it's about the second advent, isn't it? Ed and Kelly are right. What we celebrate now, yes, in one sense we look back, but we also look forward. We look forward to Christ's return. The disciples of Jesus in every generation, not just these here at Jesus' feet, but us today, we're to always keep in mind that Jesus will return again. The second truth these parables teach us is that The time of Christ's return is unknown to us. And Jesus says that explicitly again in verse 40. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when he will return. It's unknown to us. The servants in the first parable did not know when their master would arrive home from the wedding feast. Nor did the master know when the thief was going to burglarize his home in verse 39. And so we carry out our ministry as disciples of Jesus with the understanding that Jesus could return on any day at any hour. Jesus will return. That is a central truth of the Christian faith, that he will return to finish what he started. And he will do it at a time that we do not expect. That leads to the third truth that Jesus conveys in these two parables in verses 35 to 40 which is that we must, as his disciples, be alert and ready for the return of our Lord. We are armed with the full knowledge. We're armed with the unquestioned truth that Jesus will return. But but because we don't know when he might return to complete his mission, we must always be ready for him. We must be ready for him at any moment. We must be watchful. We We must be looking for his coming. We must be alert. We must be ready at a moment's notice. In fact, notice how Jesus opens the passage in verse 35. He says, stay dressed for action. Literally, that phrase should be translated, let your loins be girded up. The loins is the waist area. And typically in Jewish culture, men wore a belt around their waist and their robes would would kind of flow down over that. When the men were at work or when they needed to run or to move quickly, they would hitch up their robe and tuck it within their belt 
to give them more mobility. I imagine it's kind of hard to run in a dress. You ladies might know this more than I would, right? It would be hard to run in a robe. So you kind of have to hitch it up to kind of give yourself some more mobility, some more quickness. But when they got home, when you were done working for the day, you didn't need to go out anymore, you took your belt off, like many of us do. We come home, we take off our work clothes, we put on more comfortable clothes, maybe that we wouldn't even go out in public in, right? We're comfortable, we're relaxed, we're, we're at ease. There's no need to be ready for any kind of emergency. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, metaphorically, to get their loins girded, to get ready for his return to get ready for action, to get ready to get back in the game. The metaphor here calls the disciples to prepare for his return so that they are found ready when he comes. Jesus also uses, in that opening exhortation, uses the illustration of lamps. He says, keep your lamps burning. Again, in a typical Jewish home without electricity, you might turn your light your lamps at night and give you a little bit of opportunity to see around you. You can't see in the dark. But certainly you wouldn't leave the lamp on all night. You would blow it out when it was time for bed. And then you would be in the dark. But Jesus says, keep your lamps burning. Why? Because he might return. So we're to watch. We're to be watching, waiting, alert, even eager for his return. We must be ready to receive him, he says. And this is what the servants of the first illustration do well, right? They know the master is going to come home, but they don't know when he might come. And so they wait for him. They keep their lamps burning. Their waiting becomes an essential part of their activity. And so when he knocks on the door, even in the midnight hours, when it is appropriate to sleep, when it is appropriate to be relaxed, when it's appropriate for the lamp to be blown out, no, they're ready. They're watchful. They are alert. They hear the knock at the door and they receive him in. And so also should all of Christ's disciples be watchful and expectant and alert and ready for their Lord's return. We should live in the constant expectation that Jesus will return at any moment to finish the job he began at his first coming. And that brings us then to the last of these parables where we see Jesus calling his disciples to faithfulness. So if in the first two parables, the emphasis is more on alertness, watchfulness, readiness, the last parable, the emphasis is more here on faithfulness. Notice that Jesus begins, that, well, the, what introduces the parable is Peter's question. Peter asks Jesus about, which is common for the disciples, to ask Jesus what he meant by that. And Jesus asks, him here, Jesus here, if, if, if this, these parable, this parable is for, for them as disciples or is it for everyone? Is it for the crowds that have gathered around Jesus? And Jesus doesn't answer that question explicitly. I think we can assume that it is at least for his disciples. It is at least for everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. But the impact is very similar to what Jesus says in some of his other parables, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So whoever would hear this should respond to it in faith. But definitely the followers of Jesus should take notice. And Jesus begins this parable with a rhetorical question in verse 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? That's the question. Who is the faithful and wise manager? 
And Jesus asked that question through the parable. Now, as we think about this parable, let's get the two key players involved. The first is the master. Literally in Greek, the master of the house refers to a wealthy man who had a large estate. And part of that estate would have included many servants at his disposal. Wealthy master, an important master. The second key player here is the manager. If you happen to use the King James, you're familiar with the King James language, the word steward would be another word that we could use here. This manager is, or this steward is the chief servant. He's the one who has responsibility for overseeing and directing all the other servants. He is the servant who answers to the master of the house. He is the one who's held accountable for the care of the servants and for the work that the servants are to do. So the faithful and wise servant then is the one who cares well for the master's servants, right? Remember that the servants belong to the master. They're his possession. And so it's in the master's best interest that the servants be well cared for, including, as it says in verse 42, making sure they get their food rations, right? They need their food rations. They need their energy. If they're going to be able to work. They need to, be, they need to have their, their, their requisite food to give them the energy that they need to do that work. So he wants to make sure they're, they're well fed. The wise and faithful manager is one who makes sure that the other servants get their rations. He makes sure they are well cared for, well supplied to be able to work heartily for the master. In verses 43 and 44 assume that the manager does his job well. When the master finds his servant acting faithfully, he rewards him. Again, we see the word there, blessed. Same word that was used earlier in verse 37, the word of divine favor, the word of divine blessing. The master treats his household manager in a way similar to the Lord, the way the Lord blesses his people. We can scale it down, right? He is that kind, has that kind of generosity, that kind of favor, that kind of blessing. So the manager receives this master's great blessing, but he also gets a promotion, if you will. He gets greater responsibility. No longer will he just oversee the household servants. He will also manage the master's possessions. So with his faithfulness, the manager also gets a great reward. But then Jesus to kind of highlight and emphasize the wise and faithful manager's faithfulness gives us some negative examples, some contrasting examples to the faithful managers. We have now in verses 45 to 48 unfaithful managers, unfaithful servants who fail to carry out the responsibilities entrusted to them by their master. In verses 45 and 46, we get the worst example. In this scenario, we have a manager who becomes complacent. His master's been away for a long time, much beyond the, the, what he expected, maybe what the master had promised. He assumes that the master is delayed. He kind of revels in his newfound power and authority and abuses it. He mistreats the household servants. This was actually quite common in the Roman Empire where the chief manager would, would, would mistreat underling servants, male and female servants. He acts indulgently. He eats and drinks and gets drunk all on the master's dime. But the master returns, right? He returns unexpectedly. He finds this manager acting faithlessly. 
And so he punishes him swiftly and decisively. We see in verse 46 that he will have him cut in pieces. That literally means to divide into two parts, like would be done in an animal sacrifice. The worst maybe form of punishment that could be devised for a servant. He totally dissociates the servant from his house and he casts them with the unfaithful who deserve harsh punishment. What a faithless manager. In the second contrasting example, verse 47, we see a servant who knows his master's will, but he deliberately disobeys it. This manager is not as negligent as the previous one since the previous one had misused his power misuses his authority, this one merely disobeys. And yet he still receives a severe beating as his punishment. In the third example, in verse 48, Jesus points to a servant who is ignorant of his master's command but still deserved punishment. The servant in this case is only lightly punished. He is still held accountable for his disobedience, but yet he is afforded some mercy because of his ignorance. Each of these three negative examples point out the kind of faithlessness to be found among these servants and emphasize all the more the faithfulness of the wise and faithful manager of verses 42 to 44. This one did his master's will in his master's absence. This one knew what the master required. He did it. He went above and beyond his responsibility because he loved his master. He was devoted to his master. He was faithful in every way that the master could expect. So what is Jesus teaching us through this parable? I think we can make the same three observations as we did a moment ago from verses 35 to 40. Let me just repeat them here. One, Jesus will return to this world to finish the mission that he began in the first advent. We see that in verses 42 and 43. The master sets his manager over the household servants and he goes away. But he returns and he reasserts his authority as before. We also see in this parable the time of Jesus' return is unknown to us. We see that in verse 43. The timing of the master's return is indefinite. We don't know when he's coming back. He just comes back at an unexpected time. In verse 46, Jesus says that the master returns on a day the servant does not expect and at an hour he does not know. We know that Jesus will return, we just don't know when. Third, we see that the followers of Jesus must be alert and ready for his return. We can respect his return at any time. We can expect it when it is unexpected. So we must remain watchful at all times, not letting our guard down, readying ourselves for his return at any moment. This is partially what Jesus commends from the faithful and wise manager and what he condemns in the faithless and disobedient servants that they were not ready for his return. They assumed him to be delayed. And yet the faithful manager was ready at every moment. But this final parable makes two additional significant points. First, it teaches us, Jesus teaches us, that he expects faithfulness among his followers. In the time of his absence, his disciples must be faithful at the work that he has entrusted to them. And that's what makes the faithful and wise manager so commendable, right? Even in his master's absence, he was faithful to obey his master's will in overseeing his house. He managed the other servants well and gave them their food rations on a regular schedule. The master found his home just as he expected it. 
And it was all because the steward was faithful to do all that the master gave him to do. By contrast, the negative examples of faithlessness highlight all the more this good and faithful manager's faithfulness. The master's responses to the faithless servants are strong and severe. He expects their faithfulness, and they have let him down by their faithlessness. And remember, just one aspect of this for us, that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his followers a mission to fulfill, right? Five times in that intervening period between his resurrection and his ascension, he told his disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Even now, some 2,000 years removed from that, those commissions, those commands, we are still to be engaged in that work. We still have a mission to fulfill, and Christ expects us to be faithfully involved in that mission. He expects us to be faithful when he comes. So he, we should expect him to find our hands at the plow. We should faithfully obey all that he has commanded us in his word. We can think of other things, too, that he expects of us. He expects us to live holy lives. He expects us to bear witness to the gospel. He expects us to bear fruit. He expects us to love our wives and honor our husbands. He expects us to disciple our children and to obey our parents. He expects us to excel at our work and treat those who work under us well. We should commit ourselves to faithfulness, right? We should commit ourselves to a radical faithfulness, not only because it's the right thing to do before God, because we, but because we want Him to find, we want Christ to find us faithful at work when he comes again, we should be faithful because Jesus expects us to find, expects to find us faithful. And the second thing that we can say about this parable is that Jesus will hold his followers accountable for their faithfulness or their faithlessness. Right? The wise and faithful manager was rewarded for his faithfulness. When his manager found him faithfully at work, he put him in charge, not just over the servants, but over all of his possessions. But the faithless servants were punished for their faithlessness. Again, some more severely than others. In fact, one was so faithful, so faithless, he was so beyond the pale of obedience and devotion to his master that his master essentially kicked him out of the house. He set him aside and, and bunched him with the faithless. He reassigned him to the wicked. There are some who follow Jesus and show their faithlessness, who show by their faithlessness that they don't really follow Jesus at all. That's Judas, right? Judas is a great example. Who is this, who is this parable for? Certainly it's for Peter, but it's also for Judas. There are some who say that they follow after Jesus, but they are showing their faithlessness, maybe in the dark, maybe in the secret places, maybe behind the scenes. And for those like Judas... They reveal by their faithlessness that they are not really part of the family of God. And so on the day of judgment, they will be exposed for what they are. They'll be exposed for being unbelievers who crept in unawares, who do not really submit to the Lordship of Christ. But for Christ's people, we will be held accountable for our faithfulness or lack of it when he comes. When Jesus comes, he makes clear in these parables that he will execute final judgment. All of his 
followers who are faithfully trusting in him, who are walking in faithfulness, they will receive his eternal reward, the reward that he promised to us in the gospel. We are truly blessed if we are good and wise and faithful managers. We are recipients of God's divine favor in Christ. But those faithless disciples who reveal themselves to be unbelievers will be punished with the burning zeal of God's wrath. Jesus lays out the principle of accountability in verse 48 when he says, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. As disciples of Jesus, we've been given much. We've been given much. We've been entrusted with much. And it only follows that because we've been entrusted with much, that he will require much of us. Jesus will hold us accountable for our faithfulness or our lack of it. Friends, none of these observations are new, right? I haven't told you something that's just totally mind-blowing. It's part and parcel of what we believe as Christians. We know these things to be true. Ed and Kelly did a great job reminding us of that. That to look back at the first advent is necessarily means that we look forward to the second advent. Yet, honestly, how many of us can say that we are thinking about that second coming? How many of us can honestly say that the reality of Jesus' return governs the way that we live today? Does it influence how you live in this moment? Does it influence you in how you live, not just today, it might be easy to do it today, on a day like today when we're thinking about it, but what about tomorrow? When you go to work, when you walk into the office and everything just kind of explodes. Or when you're trying to teach your kids at home and they just refuse to obey, just out of control, won't listen. Or when you're looking at the bank account and realizing that you've got some serious problems. Does the return of Christ meet you in that moment? Are you expectant in that moment? Is that Reality governing how you will live in that moment and in that day. The fact of the matter is, this is a truth that we often forget or neglect, and yet we must keep it before us because the return of Christ is our hope. The return of Christ is our hope. It is the promise and reward of the gospel. We must labor faithfully for our Lord, knowing that He is coming, even though we don't know when He will come. We must be watchful and alert and ready for His coming. We must keep one eye looking to heaven while at the same time faithfully keeping our hand to the plow so that He finds us busy doing His work when He comes. And when He finds us serving Him faithfully, we'll have no fear giving an account before Him. Jesus is worthy of our watchfulness. He's worthy of our preparation. He is worthy of our labor. And so as we prepare to celebrate this first Advent season, let us also look to the promise of Christmas that Jesus entered our world to establish the kingdom of God, to bring his people to live with him in that kingdom and to rule over them forever. In this season, let us look back to what he started so that we might look ahead to what he will finish. And yes, Kelly, those words were right. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
that Christ is coming again. It's the hope that we have, Lord, that this that we're enduring now is not all there is. That even though, Lord, we look at this past year and we say, yeah, 2020, that I think if we're being honest, that we would have to say that life is really just 2020 over and over and over again. The expressions are different. The, the forms of sin are different. The, the hurts are different. But, Lord, we are a people waiting We are a people longing, like the people of Israel in the first advent. We are looking for your return. We are looking for your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to have our minds fixed on that truth, on that hope, on that reality, and that we will press into that, that we will press on, that we will keep one eye toward heaven, that we will let the truth that you're coming again be a motivation for us to put our hands to the plow and to keep serving, to keep being faithful, to keep obeying your commands. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.